Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we are joined by media psychologist Dr. Christine Marie to discuss her dissertation on what she calls media humiliation and misrepresentation. We talk about the traumatic impact of media harassment, the psychological damage caused by misrepresentation on a mass scale, and the victim-blaming methods used by those who participate in these campaigns. Most importantly, we explore strategies for healing, growth, and reclaiming your life after cancellation. So, hello, Dr. Christine Marie. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Um, yeah, so we basically just want to talk to you about this really important um, research uh, paper that you did, um, which is titled the traumatic, the traumatic Impact of Media Humiliation, Misrepresentation, and Victim Shaming on Narrative Identity and Well-Being. So yeah, this is like a 400-page research paper um, that really went into detail and unpacked um, a lot of really important concepts. So we want to walk through some of those concepts with you. To start off, um, can you define for us and explain the concept of narrative identity and what that means um, in the context of your research? Absolutely. Narrative identity is your story, how you see yourself, how you you define yourself by the stories that you you have lived and by the stories that you tell yourself. And so that's the narrative. Narrative is like a story. And the story of yourself is it's wired in us. It's ingrained in us. And when somebody comes in and sort of hacks your narrative identity and says, wait a minute, that's not who you are. Here's the real story of who you are. It really messes with your brain. Yeah, thank you. I feel like it's such an interesting um, concept and I found it to be really relatable. And you talk about, you know, just that people like use stories from their lives to sort of like create meaning and to like have a stable sense of self. Um, and that this is something that like people do and it's like important for mental health and well-being. Is that correct? Absolutely. In order for us to feel like whole beings, we have to make sense of who we are. And we change even, and that's healthy. I mean, as we get more stories in our life, we have more experiences, we could redefine who we are. We can modify the meaning based on new things that we've learned. And so it, a narrative identity is something that continues to evolve, but it is there's a constant because who you are is built from all these beautiful gems of life experiences you've had. And you build within yourself this strong feeling of this is who I am. And you test out your identity by telling stories. Think about this, like, like, like you two, when you were in high school or maybe you know, soon after high school, you would tell certain stories about your life, about your parents, about how you know, unfair this was or how happy this was. 
But as you grow, those stories probably are not the ones you tell when you meet people. That's how we get to know people by sharing stories. And it's, it's an interesting examination of our own sense of self to analyze what are the stories that I tell about myself, because those are the stories that contribute to what I think about myself. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, and a lot of your research is about how basically the disruption of those stories um, can take the form of uh, what you call M MHM, which stands for Media Humiliation and Misrepresentation. Um, can you uh, explain for our listeners um, that a little bit and break down what you mean by humiliation and misrepresentation and how this plays into um, or how, how they are, uh, how it works with like the, the media um, in, in the modern era? Sure. I shortcut it and just call it media trauma. Okay. That's the that's the end result of being misrepresented and humiliated and shamed in the media. Now I want to point out why that matters. In the DSM-5, which is the you know the big diagnostic manual that is used to determine whether somebody has post-traumatic stress disorder, they don't consider that being humiliated in the media, or really any experience in the media as a potential catalyst of post-traumatic stress disorder. But I argue that it should be included because being humiliated and publicly shamed and misrepresented, which are all a little bit different, but it is a traumatic experience. And here's why. Should I, should I unpack that or do you have uh, individual questions? Well, because yeah, I don't want to talk too much. No, we, we would love to unpack that. And we have more questions about that for sure. We were wondering if first you could sort of um, go into what um, humiliation like really means, like in the context okay, of okay. your work and also misrepresentation and sort of like, okay. and how that works with the media in particular. <laughs> okay. So humiliation is when you have an agent or a humiliator. Now the humiliator can be a person or it can be like a system or a big, you know, organization. I mean, such as the media, the media can be a humiliator. Sure. Humiliation is when you feel unfairly demeaned. Mm -hmm. It's different. It's different than just being embarrassed because when you're embarrassed, it's not, it's not a traumatic experience. You, you know, it's even rather funny. You tell people a story about it sometimes, but when you're humiliated, it's like the public, the audience that saw your humiliation or witnessed this suddenly gangs up on you, or they're sending you this collective message that you are not worthy to be part of mankind. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I mean, in my research, I call it the family of man because I quote um, a, a scholar named Marguerite, and he says that humiliation is when you're cast out of the family of man. So all of a sudden, you find yourself on the outside of what is acceptable when maybe your entire life you have spent 
trying to, you know, do good in the world or be a person who cares or, or who does things that are productive. You've, you've built this narrative, this sense of self. Now you're being unfairly humiliated. Now, and to operationalize the word humiliation, my, the definition that I chose that, you know, different scholars use includes that sense that this is not fair. So when you're humiliated, you don't deserve it. That's the common characteristic. And, the, and one of the differences with embarrassment or shame. With shame, there's this sense that, you know, maybe I could have done something better. Shame is a productive emotion because it can motivate you to make amends or to, you know, to make things right. But when you're humiliated, there's nothing that you can do to make it right because you didn't deserve it. Let's say you are humiliated because you were, let's say you're a rape victim and you didn't bring that on yourself. And then let's suppose that there's a story about you and it's very victim shaming and people start attributing the blame to you and that's not fair and you can't make it right when you were not the person who did this. There's nothing you can change. When you're humiliated, it's a fact. It, it happened to you mm-hmm. and you can't, you can't change it. You can't make amends. Right. So, so that's very traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, you know, when you're talking about humiliation and and specifically about how it's very dehumanizing to be um, humiliated and the way that it casts you out of this like human community, I just think a lot about the fact that like humans are social animals who like so deeply require community. Um, Like we're evolved for community, right? And so on like a biological and nervous system level, we're really wired towards needing our group, right? And so humiliation is really like this experience of being cast out of the group um, and and exiled in some sense and also kind of marked as like unworthy of being a part of the group. Um, Hello? That's what I'm getting from from your description of humiliation. Right. Humili- neuroscience shows that humiliate. Can you hear me? Yep. yep. Okay. I got this message. Your internet connection is unstable. Okay. Um, neuroscience shows that humiliation is the most intense human emotion. And if we think about it, we all remember that thing that happened when we were young. We remember our humiliation events forever. Mm-hmm. And it's very intense. It's so deep. And it's not natural. We don't expect to be humiliated. It's a violation of our expectations mm-hmm. because we didn't deserve it. We didn't see it coming. Right. And that, that's part of why it hurts so much. It's very intensely painful and yet there is an entire media industry that profits off the humiliation of human beings i was fascinated by the part of your um, dissertation that mentioned how um, victims of torture are often sort of like tormented by the experience of humiliation far more than they are of the the remembrance of the actual physical pain that was inflicted on them Right, because humiliation is a wound that happens in the brain. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a social wound that's so deep. Whereas torture or being assaulted 
it's a wound that happens to the body and you can't relive your physical pain. It happened, you can remember it, but you can relive your social pain. Mm. Right, over and over again, because the brain can just produce it again. Yeah, that's right. Right. Um, and how do you think this plays into this process of misrepresentation or, or what's the connection between humiliation and misrepresentation? Misrepresentation is painful as well, even if it's positive. Hmm. There's a little, um, um, I mean, it might just be annoying. There's a spectrum of suffering and it might go from just, well, that was annoying. I didn't really do those good things. I got, you know, to this other end of the spectrum where you're totally misrepresented. Now, misrepresentation tells you that the person in the media or the mob in the media don't understand who you are fully as a human being. You're being misunderstood. And that's one of the factors that contributes to humiliation when you're not seen as a full human being, mm -hmm. when you're seen as maybe an animal or a stereotype or as somebody that wasn't worth having a producer or a blogger fact check. It is a sign of honor when you're properly represented. I've been in the media, you know, a number of times, and it seems surprising to me that people have such a difficult time getting the story right. Mm -hmm. I think it's because everyone's in a hurry, you know, uh, media has deadlines. And I think many times there is a misrepresentation because. I mean, I, I think many times there is a misrepresentation that is not malicious. Somebody did not mean to quote you wrong or describe you inaccurately, but it's still a message that you weren't worth the time to really get to know or to be represented properly. It, it's, mm -hmm. we, want, we want people to know who we really are. Yeah, and That's, it's... It's interesting because it connects to your what you put forth about narrative identity, right? If narrative identity is so important to our understanding of ourselves um, and how we make sense of our lives, obviously being misrepresented um, is basically like somebody taking your narrative identity from you and, and, and giving it back to you in a different form. Right. It's like an X. It's like a big X that comes chopping down mm -hmm. on your sense of self. And then somebody pours in all this misinformation and then the public runs with it. Right. This is who you are. This is who you are. Then you're getting all these messages from the public saying you are this person that you aren't. And when you have so many people sending you this false message about yourself, your brain says, how could so many people be wrong? For sure. And one of the things that you write about is how in the past, like public humiliation was used um, commonly as a form of punishment, right? But um, the only people who would be aware of it were people who were present or people who were told about it. Whereas um, in, in the context of social media and the internet, um, public humiliation remains at large seemingly forever um, and is also accessible by millions or potentially billions of people. 
Right, which makes it such a massive topic that needs to be dealt with. Because when you are in a car accident or when you are, when you have experienced interpersonal violence, it is something that happened in the past. You can spend the present healing from it. You might have triggers, you might have flashback, but you're not having a recurrence of the car accident or, you know, the assault. So you can spend the present and the future filled with hope that you can get over this. And that is what a therapist works on. Right. But with media, with media-based trauma or media trauma, you have the wound in the past and every social media comment, every troll, every hateful message is like a new wound. Every time you open your email, you wonder, is there going to be more hatred in here? Every time you go into a part, you know, you go to a party or, you know, remember when we used to do that? Right. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. So every time you might go into a group of people, you'll be wondering, is somebody going to say something who has yeah. been influenced by this misinformation? So the wounds, one of the reasons the wounds are so deep is because you really don't have the freedom to just heal because it can continue and continue and continue. The misinformation spreads and spreads and spreads, especially if it's some sort of juicy story. And many professionals in the media don't take the time to fact check something that is popular and viral. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I wanted to bring it back to trauma a little bit, um, which you had already started to get into. So you've talked about how, you know, in the DSM, um, they don't, like they list sort of what are causes um, for PTSD as part of the diagnosis criteria, but they don't list humiliation um, as one of the causes. Yet um, in your research, you point out that even though um, this kind of large-scale humiliation is not listed in the DSM as like a cause of PTSD, that the symptoms and the experiences that um, your research participants were um, displaying actually totally line up with descriptions of trauma and PTSD. So can you say a little bit more about that and how you saw um, how you came to understand that these experiences of media misrepresentation um, and humiliation are actually traumatic. Absolutely. So I took two scales that measure PTSD and I modified them so that they would apply to media misrepresentation, humiliation, public shaming. And the symptoms were the same. So in other words, even though the requirement, there's this criterion A in the DSM manual to be considered, to be diagnosed with PTSD. And criterion A involves, you know, having a life-threatening experience mm-hmm. you know, or, or sexually assaulted or something that's unnatural and, un, and not normal. Mm-hmm. Well, when when talking about being humiliated in the media, I have spoken with, you know, academician, academian, wait, let me start that over. 
um, when I've spoken to therapists and academics about whether media can be a catalyst to PTSD, the problem was that media humiliation, in their opinion, did not meet you know criterion A, right? Because it, but I disagree with that, and I I argue this in my in my in my work because it is life threatening. Your reputation, your legacy, your sense of self is your sense of life. Yeah. And so many people have been documented, for example, if they've been villainized in, in reality shows or, or publicly shamed through other means, they've either contemplated suicide or committed suicide. It is that painful. So if it's that painful, why would media trauma not be considered a form of trauma that results in PTSD? Yeah. So I, I, could you say a little bit more about um, some of the symptoms that people, because um, I know you talk about it in your research study, things like, for example, like avoidance, um, uh, rumination, like some of these typical uh, trauma um, symptoms or responses that you saw um, your research research participants displaying or talking about in the study? Absolutely. There was a sense of disconnection or numbness among the subjects in my research because it's so surreal, you can't deal with it. It's like the only way that I can handle something this painful is to leave my body or to not feel things. There's this sense of avoidance, like you don't want to go on social media, you don't want to be seen, you want to, you know, you you may might not even want to check your email because you just don't know. There's the compulsion to correct the misinformation. Now that's not a normal aspect of PTSD, but that's why I think that media trauma should have its own space in, you know, in this conversation. And how do you correct it? And and we can get to that. There is silencing people when they try to defend themselves or to say the truth, then they get, you know, they get attacked and and dehumanized. There's there's this sense of feeling stigmatized, like there's something seriously wrong with you. There's a mourning a sense of mourning you're it's sort of they call it disenfranchised grief mm. when there is when you're mourning something that is not socially acceptable like let's suppose you had maybe you had a son that is imprisoned for some horrible deed and your son dies you know it's hard to get social support if your son was this horrible criminal it's the same sort of, you know, it, it, it's where you're grieving in a way that's not the kind of grief where people are going to come over and say, I'm so sorry this happened to you because they think you deserve it. People believe the misrepresentation in the media. So they're not going to surround you with support if the misrepresentation makes you look like a very bad person. Right. And there's this constant feeling of being unsafe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, if you go out, are you going to be mobbed? Is your family going to be okay? I know a person who 
was misrepresented in the media, and he was receiving threats for something that was false. He was receiving threats that his family would be murdered, and and you know this entire group of people that were ganging up on him. They had message boards, and they even showed the place where they were going to bury the bodies and so on. So this particular man, for a while, spent the night on the roof with a gun. So right. this is. These are real things that happen. People have to leave their home because of this kind of, you know, humiliation and shaming. These are unwanted changes in their life world that they did not ask for. It impacts their ability to make money. It, It kills their former dreams. And it might even impact their ability to find love in the future or have a family, depending on the the circumstances, but it is serious times a million. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really um, fascinated by this because um, I do have uh, complex PTSD myself and like I do a lot of work on trauma um, and I've also experienced cancellation. And like for me, I totally see the correlations, the things like, you know, social like withdrawal and avoidance, um, hypervigilance, um, like yes. total change in like affect, like not being able to enjoy things that you used to enjoy, like just the way that it totally sucks up your entire life. And like for me as somebody who already had complex PTSD, I'm kind of like, is this experience of cancellation just sort of aggravating a pre-existing condition? But I actually think after having read your study that I think that these experiences on their own could produce uh, PTSD or complex PTSD symptoms in people. So um, on that, I just wanted to um, bring up a little bit about um, the distinction between PTSD and complex PTSD, um, which I know you talk about in your research. And um, so um, as you talk about in your research, like complex PTSD is not an official diagnosis in the DSM. Um, And basically um, what has happened is that over a period of time, like therapists and and trauma researchers have pointed out that the the diagnosis PTSD is not actually sufficient in describing the experiences of people who were exposed to ongoing and unending trauma. um, And that that creates a sort of a different kind of trauma, which some people call complex PTSD. And it was first um, coined by Judith Herman in the book Trauma and Recovery. Um, And so I'm very interested in this, obviously, just because it's my own lived experience. But um, so one of the criteria that differentiates complex PTSD from PTSD is the internalization of the perpetrator's worldview. And that's like something that's specific um, to complex PTSD, whereas it's like, you know, with PTSD, if you are sort of assaulted randomly Um, you're not likely, if you don't have prior trauma, to believe that that was somehow your fault, right? But if you're exposed to unending um, abuse, like in childhood, for example, where you are unable to escape, you're likely to internalize the worldview of your um, perpetrator and start to believe that there's something wrong with you and that you're bad and that there's some kind of reason that this is happening to you, that it's your fault. And this kind of goes back to the distinction that you were making earlier about humiliation and shame, um, where humiliation is when we can understand that this is happening from an external cause, but shame can actually be when we've internalized that humiliation um, and we start to take it personally. And so in the context of um, media misrepresentation and humiliation, because it is so persistent and because it is so all-encompassing and it takes over people's entire lives and they're unable to escape it, 
Um, I actually think that it probably for many people more closely aligns with the experience of complex PTSD. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I was just wondering if you wanted to, if you wanted to speak on that at all. And if you, in your research, if you saw that people were having experiences of sort of blaming themselves or taking on the humiliation and sort of turning it into shame. And if that was something that came up um, in your research. Yes, absolutely. So I think that one of the reasons people would develop this loss of um, vitality, this, you know, this loss of life energy is because they were, you know, taking on the belief that the things, the negative things that they were being, you know, um, surrounded by were actually based in some kind of reality that they need to look at. And when you internalize this kind of shame and this kind of stigma, it has its own toxic consequences. And, you know, when I remember I went through this experience myself as well, through being um, humiliated in the media for something. And I remember thinking, how, how can so many people think this and it be wrong? I really need to see what it is in me that they see. And I remember taking it on and it, it was, this is not an easy thing for a therapist because people, you know, people in, um, people who have been through this, get these unhelpful comments like, Oh, just get over it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's, um, just black them. And they don't realize that the survivor of media trauma is experiencing complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not something they can just, you know, take a bath and wash it off. Mm-hmm. It's, it invades the, the person's worldview and they, you know, they buy into some of it. Now, not everyone, but many, because, I mean, think about how the life has changed when you're canceled, for example. Let's suppose you have this dream and you've worked so hard on this dream and then something comes up somebody finds some tweet from the past or or somebody makes something up or they or you worded things in a way that where the intention wasn't acknowledged the real intention and all of a sudden you are like objectified and worthless and cast out of you know the center of society where you have love and belongingness so what do you do now so, so you're dealing with multiple layers of trauma, the complex PTSD, the, the isolation, the, the, the feeling of worthlessness and, you know, you're no longer welcome into the social circles that you were welcome in, loss of finances. Now you're struggling, your life stability is at risk, your sense of safety. So how do you heal? Absolutely. And I think this ties into another question too of, um, of temporality. And it's something that I've never really come across with, um, um, with research about this, but it's really interesting where you sort of noted that, um, like media humiliation and misrepresentation produces trauma that is sort of future facing instead of 
instead of past facing, you know, in the sense that you can, you can look forward to continuing. I think there was a quote in your dissertation, if I can remember it correctly, is that um, the future becomes dangerous to envision. Um, I was yes. wondering if you, if you could speak on that a little bit. Right. Well, everything that you thought about yourself is suddenly a fragile eggshell. You don't know. I mean, you may know. I mean, it, it really depends on the person. But you, you do know that who you think you are is not who the world thinks you are. And this is a very terrifying edge of the cliff to be walking on because you think what has already happened has been so painful. I, I could barely live through it. Is this my future? Is this what I have to look forward to? Is it going to get worse? And you catastrophize with good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you're making this up. Right. You have experienced it and you don't know if it's ever going to end. And so you don't know if you dare picture a future doing what you used to do or if you, you know, you tiptoe out and you try to like undo the cancellation, for example, then are you going to get mobbed again yeah, and make worse? It worse? Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because with um, discussions of like trauma recovery, like usually the first stage of trauma recovery is like establishing safety in the present, right? Like people don't usually recommend that people do trauma recovery if they're in an ongoing dangerous situation. You first have to establish you know, a certain degree of, of safety in the present in order to then do the healing from the past. But if you're currently and in, in, in an ongoing way with no end in sight, experiencing this harassment, you know, it's really hard to, to do the work of trauma recovery because that does require like, you know, developing a certain sense of safety. Right. Which is extra painful to even think about being in a same, in a safe place because you have the people who are supposed to be supporting you and helping you joining in the crowd that's attacking you. Mm. So how, how can you be safe? Like your friends have bought into it in some cases. Yeah. Like, you know, I, and there's, there's so much unfairness. It's like, you know, getting thrown off a boat and you see the people in the boat that are supposed to send you a life preserver but instead of throwing you a life preserver, they clap and watch you drown. Yeah. And in this world of restorative justice and transformative justice, we like to imagine that we're going to make the world a better place by, by providing human beings with dignity, even after they have you know, uh, committed offenses, because if it's not worth the death penalty, they're worth you know, be, being treated as human beings. And even if they're on death row, they're worth being treated as human beings. But when you're publicly humiliated, where is the path back mm -hmm. to mankind? The people that you believed in and that you associated or, or that you believe should be supporting you are part of the group that wants to see you drown. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge betrayal and like a huge unthinkable level. Um, this kind of leads us into the next question, actually, which is basically about the mechanism through which people manage to 
um, betray the people in their lives um, at such a large scale. And also just um, the ways in which we are able to shut off our empathy for people who are currently being targeted. So when people are experiencing these like um, these large scale media humiliation and misrepresentation experiences, you know, people either ignore it or they take part in it. Um, and very few people are willing to come to the defense of the people who are being targeted. And in your study, you talk about a few um, psychological sort of mechanisms through which people um, develop the capacity to turn off their empathy. Um, and so some of them that you talk about are belief in a just world, um, psychological distancing, and attribution theories. So I was wondering if you could unpack those for our listeners. Yes, yes. Belief in a just world is when you see that something bad has happened to someone, your brain says that person must have deserved it because the world is just. This would not be happening to her or to him if they did not deserve it. So that, I mean, believing that the world is just is our way of staying safe because if, if what is happening is truly unfair, then it could happen to us. We don't want to think that, this, that such an experience could ever happen to us it's safer for us to think they must have done something to deserve this. And interestingly, we are more critical of people who are similar to us. We want to blame them more and, and talk about how defective they are because, again, it builds our wall of safety because if we can show them as defective and we can blame them for what happened, then we can, you know, our, our life and our world doesn't have to change. We don't have to live in fear that this is going to happen to us. We like to say, oh, I'm smarter than that. I, that would never happen to me. I would never make those decisions. But we don't realize that people make decisions many times based on complicated circumstances around them. The fundamental attribution error is when we say, oh, that happened to her because she was stupid. But if it happened, if the very same thing happened to me, we say, oh, it happened to me because, you know, all these people were deceiving me and then this happened and that happened. And we take the circumstances that led to it when it is in our own experience. We understand the weight of the environment, the environmental factors and the circumstances but we turn our brains off when mm -hmm. it happens to somebody else and just say, Oh, well, you know, they just, their, their character was defective. And then psychological distancing. It's, it's similar. We want to not really feel empathy because it opens the Pandora's box of, wait a minute, if this is really wrong, do I have a moral obligation to publicly defend this person that the, the entire world hates? Do I have, does, you know, you, we don't want our conscience mm -hmm. to say, to put ourselves at risk of becoming subjected to the same consequences as the person that's being attacked. For sure. So, so it's, it's like stigma, you know, um, I talk about stigma in my research too, because when you're humiliated in the media, you're stigmatized and you can internalize that. But aside from that, it's like 
you feel like you're contaminated or like you're radioactive because nobody wants to jump in and defend you. How dare they? Let's suppose that you were falsely accused of sexually assaulting somebody. Well, nobody wants to defend that person. Mm -hmm. But what if it's false? Where do you go? What do you do? For sure. Which actually, like our next question is literally about this. So of all of your case studies, the case of Sterling uh, probably best describes what we call cancel culture. Um, I would love if you could talk a little bit about um, Sterling's case and also about the specifics of how um, media humiliation and misrepresentation can play out on a social media context. So Sterling had a big Instagram following and he would do comedy. and. He had a comedy part and he was accused of some things which there was, um, which were false. I mean, there was no, there was no proof. There was, um, I'm ha- okay. So anyway, Sterling was subjected to the, these false accusations. And as a result of it, everybody jumped in and he could not defend himself because he was in the situation where the people who were making these accusations had a huge platform. And when he tried to defend himself and he tried to do an accountability statement, it just seemed that instead of making things better, it made things worse. He was, his home was graffitied. There were posters around Los Angeles warning people of this alleged uh, perpetrator. And then his comedy partner was attacked as well because she tried to stand up for him and say, this is not who he is. And so she got the consequences. And that's mm-hmm. what happens. Like when you try to jump in the, the mix and defend somebody who is being you know, massively humiliated, you take the risk of having your own legacy and career destroyed. So where does that leave somebody who actually is falsely accused? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the pieces of this social media aspect that I wanted to draw out a little bit is in some of the other examples that you talk about, Um, with experiences of media humiliation and misrepresentation, you're talking about things like um, people who signed up for like a reality TV show, for example, and then, you know, totally lost control of the way that their image was represented and were humiliated. Um, And in a lot of these cases, there's like someone specific that you could like point your finger at that you're like, you know, this was this like this company or like this um, this particular um, group of people who have profited off of this misrepresentation. It's like a particular media outlet or so on and so forth. But in the case of Sterling and in the case of other people who have been canceled on social media, what's so intense about it, I think, is that it's so diffuse. Like these are hundreds or thousands of internet strangers who are all participating, who are all participating um, and who are all reproducing this cancellation. Um, so you can't even point your finger at like one particular, um, you know, one particular person who's doing this to you. It's actually just a whole bunch of strangers. And it's often it's people who are kind of like, they may be strangers, but they're kind of like your peers in the sense that they are also just regular citizens and not in fact, um, like a producer of television shows or something. Right. Right. That's, I mean, it's, it's such an intense 
experience and such a betrayal. I know we've said this, but this is the word that kept coming through in my research as well. I mean, how could they do this to me? I didn't do that. And, you know, it's difficult, especially in this day and age, because we believe victims. I believe victims. It is rare for somebody to falsely accuse. And, and I stand by that, but it does happen. And when it does, there is no mechanism for the, the falsely accused person to really reclaim his legacy. Yeah. You know, if it's, if it's a, he said, she said situation, unless maybe, you know, I mean. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think another piece that's really important is that, you know, of course, like there's this, there's this discourse and there's narratives, this narrative about belief survivors and that false accusations are rare, but we also live in a time under cancel culture in which accusations, they kind of take on a life of their own. Right. And so in your study, you know, it talks about how the initial accusation against this person was that an ex-partner communicated that she had felt sexually uncomfortable um, or there was like a few, there was like two instances in their relationship where she had felt sexually uncomfortable or the wording was something like that, you know? Right. And then he attempted to take ownership of that and to take accountability for that and say, you know, I did not realize I had crossed any boundaries, but like, I really want to take responsibility if that's what happened. And I'm sorry. And I think that it's important for people to take responsibility. I think survivors should be heard. You know, I wasn't aware that I had crossed a line, but if I had, like, I want to be responsible. And then from there that like, you know, the fact that he had made that statement, it like solidified this narrative that he was a rapist. Um, and then from there, like somebody made an accusation that he had raped, I think, 12 women. Um, but this person was not claiming to be a victim themselves. And it was just like that that number just came out of thin air. Right. Um, and so I've seen this kind of thing happen as well, where like accusations snowball once they're being passed around the social media, um, you know, People, it's like a, it's like broken telephone where somebody can say one thing and then when it's been passed along a few times, it can just suddenly have all of these details that, like you said in the beginning, have never been fact-checked um, and no one is actually making sure that what they're passing on is in any way true. Right, because there is a social reinforcement to joining in the crowd, to joining in the public shaming of somebody that you believe is a real criminal and because you're not ready to take the effort to do the critical thinking and the investigation to vet it. So you just join in and people feel a sense of power. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that on the internet, there's something called the disinhibition effect mm -hmm. where we can just say all these things. We, we are not inhibited. We are uninhibited more on the internet because there's more of a sense of um, distance and more anonymity. Maybe we have a username and we can be really mean. People mm -hmm. can be just cruel. Oh yeah. Beyond they, say things they would never say to your face. Absolutely. And they might even feel powerful from that. You know, that might make them feel like, you know, a little, you know, a little bit of a, Hormone rush. Mm -hmm. That felt that felt good because I'm, you know, I'm attacking somebody who deserves to be attacked. Yeah. I'm being I'm being a hero. Yeah. And I could say all the mean things that I wanted to say about my own predator to this person. Yeah. Because how could he not be a predator when, you know, all these people are saying it? I'm just joining in the crowd. 
So we get a little rush, people could get that. And even, I believe, maybe a slight sense of addiction to being mean on the internet, if that's your character. For sure. Um, Still on the topic of Sterling, like we wanted to ask about how sort of online social justice culture might shape some of these experiences. And I want to sort of preface this by saying that I know that that's not the, the, the main focus of your work. Um, but I was wondering if you had given it any thought because it is sort of relevant to this case where Sterling was kind of, um, really in deep with a certain kind of milieu on the internet, um, of people who are very invested, at least putatively in social justice. Um, and, um, and the way in which they thought about that really impacted the way that he was eventually treated. And I was wondering if you have, have sort of thought about that at all. Well, absolutely. The intentions, here's the thing. Sometimes in these situations where people are being publicly humiliated, the humiliators actually have good intentions. They believe they're doing something to stop a bad person from hurting more people, right? But what we forget is that I mean, social justice, the the social media gives people a platform for social justice, but it also gives people a platform for social injustice. And it's imbalanced right now. So so what I hope in my next focus of, you know, academia, I I would like to focus on what is the path back after this has has after you have experienced this, because this is unfair. I mean, here you have all these, you know, liberal people that believe in these feminist values, wanting to give a voice to the oppressed. And then unwittingly, they become a voice that joins together and becomes the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So it's, but there's no, there's no system yet. There's no, for example, there are no intermediaries for somebody who's been publicly shamed. And, you know, like in the restorative justice movement, you have people that have become specialists in helping the survivor or the victim feel heard and have their needs met and at the same time treat the perpetrator in a way that will actually result in some sort of transformation. And what, but we don't do that in social media. We say, we have made the decision. We have been the judge, the jury, and the executioner for this person. And we have never really listened to, you know, both sides. We have just assumed that the victim is right. And I am a victim's advocate. I believe victims, but I also believe that when we go overboard in the Me Too movement, and I mean overboard, then we become the victimizers. Right. Because, I mean, having false allegations leveraged against you is to be victimized. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And like, I mean, I'm a survivor too. And I think it's like, it's tricky to have these conversations, right? Because I think survivors can feel really defensive and can actually feel triggered and have their nervous systems respond really intensely. 
when we start talking about things like false allegations, because, you know, obviously survivors want to be believed and want to be supported and deserve to be believed and deserve to be supported. Um, But I also think that we've created a culture that really lacks discernment um, in helping people to understand um, what their experience was, right? So like a person, you know, in Sterling's case, and I, you know, the details, I think there's some of the details are in the, in the study, but it's like, you know, if a person feels uncomfortable in, um, a consensual relationship, or there's like a lack of communication that, that happens, um, where like, whatever, they didn't, they didn't have the best conversation about consent that they should have had or something like that, which is like pretty common. Um, I think that there's ways of addressing that and dealing with that. That doesn't mean labeling someone a rapist and trying to destroy their life. For sure. And I'm just going to like jump in and say that some of the, some of the, some of what calls itself transformative or restorative justice can turn into these like really horrific online spectacles. And, yeah. and we, we saw one, uh, we saw, you know, yeah, like one of these things the other day that was, you know, um, a sort of like live video that had been seen by like, I think a hundred thousand people in which someone was called all sorts of like fucked up names. Um, and this was sort of like under the guise of like restorative justice, you know? And I'm like, this is like a horrifying um, ritual of humiliation. This, there's nothing about this as restorative in any way. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, that probably would have infuriated me because, you know, we want perpetrators to reform. And the more we use these words on them, the more likely they are to have that ingrained in their identity. So how do we help people reform? Well, I mean, there have been successful examples of, for example, of somebody in the media who, you know, made a a racist or a derogatory remark who then went and got educated and and realized and and did a real sincere public apology and i mean this is the best case people make these mistakes well let's let the entire world learn from what they learned in the process but that doesn't mean subjecting them to you know the the public humiliation punishment of the 17th century which were so ineffective that they quit doing them because once they had been so branded they could never recover their life yeah and i mean like it it comes up in sterling's case again but it's like often when people do try to do the right thing or like what they think is the right thing and they do make some kind of public accountability statement and they think that that is, you know, going to be enough for them to then be able to be like, I'm sorry, I made this mistake. I'd like to move on now. It it just becomes an excuse for further abuse being levered against them, leveraged against them. And they don't actually have any way of like escaping it. It, it doesn't stop just because they've taken accountability. Right. And that's also one of the factors of complex PTSD is when there is no escape. Exactly. Um, so... Another concept that I wanted to ask you about um, that comes up in your study um, is the idea of narrative foreclosure. Um, And so I was wondering if you could like define what that means and how that fits in with the idea of narrative identity um, and what the impact is of narrative foreclosure on survivors of media humiliation and misrepresentation. Um, So, yeah, you just you described that um, life stories are hijacked, ruptured, and co-opted. So, if you could say more about that, right? Narrative foreclosure is this term that means 
you feel like there is no next chapter in your life. Your life story is over. It's normally a term used when dealing with people in hospice or the elderly, but it applies very strongly to this situation as well, because you think my life is over. My legacy has been destroyed. There is no hope for me. There is no future for me. This is who I have been painted as. So I don't have a future. What is my next chapter? It's very easy when you think you don't have a next chapter with anything positive to look forward to, to think that your next chapter is to end your life. So that is one of the, you know, recurring symptoms or patterns of people who've been through traumatic media humiliation is suicidal ideation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of the things that I found so powerful about your dissertation was that it did a really good job of both exploring how like, like just the, the extent of how bleak things can get for um, people who are subjected to MHM, but also that you then have a whole section on recovery um, and how people can actually like what kinds of, what kinds of things in their lives help them to recover um, what themes emerged when they talked about recovery from their experiences. Um, and I thought that was awesome. So I wanted to ask um, or let you uh, tell us about what elements your study found, um, elements that were helpful to recovery from uh, MHM experiences. Well, the most important thing was interpersonal support. And that's no joke because the purpose of the media humiliation by the humiliators is to sort of cinch off your access to personal support. So when you have at least your family and a few friends that really believe in you during this time, that is an enormous piece of you know recovery gold, so to speak. So now another thing is obviously professional therapy, the therapist is going to remind you that all these people, generally speaking, most of the people that are, you know, jumping in on the public attacks are faceless people to you. You don't know them. They don't know you. They're strangers just having fun. They don't realize how one simple mean comment is another, you know, another stone in the pond that makes another wave and that it all accumulates to this mass uh, suffering for the person. But if you think of everyone as just they don't know you, it's not the real you that they are humiliating because you have been misrepresented and take comfort in the fact that who you really are is who you know you are and your closest interpersonal group will help you to remember that and your therapist will too other things that have helped people through this some people turn to spirituality some people turn to nature and animals and it's it's um it's great because you become centered again with real life you're not in the digital world 
your, you know, your, you remember like happy memories from the past. That's very important too. But to get out in nature and to realize what life is really all about and that it is possible that you're going to be getting through this and that it's just a matter of time. There is hope. People can, I mean, some people turn to creative pursuits or physical endeavors, you know, running or hiking or things like that. But when you go through a trauma of this magnitude, and in my opinion, this is one of the most painful forms of anguish that a human being can experience. To go through this, you might be left with traumatic scars, but at the same time, you can experience post-traumatic growth. There is hope. I want people to know this. You can take control of your media. There are things that you can do. It's not easy, but as time goes on, people forget. Our brains are like a pipeline or, a, or like a tube. And we think we can only hold so much in the front of our brains. And I think about the example of Bill Clinton when he, you know, he was involved in a, in a, in a real serious scandal. But today, why is it that people are not continuing to public shame him? Um, well, he's had so many other stories about him since then that we forget. Our brain can only hold so many. So it's like it took the real negative story and pushed it out the other side of the tube because all these other stories have been packed in the, into that, you know, awareness tube. So there, there are ways to get your negative story out of the public, you know, zeitgeist. And I mean, Monica Lewinsky is a perfect example. She reclaimed her story, reclaimed her narrative, and she repurposed it for good. And that can happen. Post-traumatic growth is when you take the negative thing that happened to you and you use it to become stronger. In fact, you might not have never, you might not have ever done a certain positive thing had you not gone through that experience. So I want to stress that because when you go through post-traumatic growth, you have a clearer sense of self and, and, you know, you're a stronger, better person. You have deeper insight and positive new perspectives and even increased appreciation for life. So there is, I mean, that, um, knowing, I, I mean, anybody who has been through cancel culture, I want to know, I want them to know that there is hope. I don't know what you, um, I don't know the exact plan for, for people. I don't have, I'm working on a toolkit, but I need to do a little bit more research. But I do know that there is hope. There's hope for a happy life. There's a hope to get this, there is hope to get this behind you. And there is hope for you to let the world know who the real you really is. You own your negative, your, you own your life legacy. No one has the right to strip you of all the good that you have done in your life because of some 
false narrative or some humiliation campaign. So hold on to it and fight and remember who you are. And if you, you know, you need help or you don't know what to do, you can call me. I have a website, christinemarie.com. And, you know, we can make a plan and do a support group with other people, see what's worked for them, but don't give up. Yeah, I really appreciate your kindness and compassion. I think that is so important. And, you know, for for us, like, I mean, Jay and I have talked about on the podcast before, like we've had our own experiences with cancel culture and with these kinds of um, humiliating media campaigns. Um, And actually doing this podcast and like openly talking about these things, I have found to be like one of the most healing and empowering experiences because it's allowed me to, yeah, take control of the narrative of my life, to make my own meaning out of it. And also it's connected me to other people who have had these experiences, right? So through um, doing this work and talking openly about it and openly opposing cancel culture and and, and framing cancel culture as unethical and wrong, um, I've actually been able to become in contact with so many people who have gone through these experiences. So many people email us and tell us about their own experiences with cancellation. Um, and in doing that, we kind of break the spell of cancellation because the point of cancellation and one of its greatest powers is to socially isolate people and make them feel like they won't be able to have community again. Um, but when we actually reach out to other people with compassion and concern, Um, we break that and we show that it is possible to have community and to be like welcome back into the family of humanity. Um, Yeah. And that's how we found out about your work through, through someone who emailed us. So I'm really glad that we did. Well, that was so beautifully articulated and you are so right because people need to be heard. They matter. Their stories matter. And you are, this podcast is a healing place for people because what one of the other patterns that I didn't expect that emerged was that people repeatedly said, you don't really understand it unless you've been through it. People don't get it. So for you to be providing an avenue where people do get it, they do understand that deep, deep trauma and betrayal, unfairness, and, and that journey is really, really a gift to this digital age. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to do, you know? Um, I think it's really true that people don't necessarily understand uh, what the experience can be like until it happens to them or someone they love. Um, right. And, uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast and for sharing all of your research. Um, You mentioned that you have a website. Is there anything else um, that you want to share about you or about how people can get in touch with you, find out more about you, anything like that? Uh, Well, I have a Twitter. It's Christine Marie K. Okay. And I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I also have a charity called Voices for Dignity. Amazing. Well, we will put all of the links in the show notes for people. Um, And yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your research. I think it's incredibly important. It's amazing that you have compiled this and actually put it together because it backs up, you know, what I intuitively know from my experience and from talking to people who have experienced these things. But it's great to actually have some some data and some like actual thought out research and like 400 pages of like well-reasoned arguments to back this up is really, really important. Yeah, honestly, it was so nice to read. Like I was just like, Oh, it's so 
comforting to like read academic prose about these experiences, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and to see all the data just like nicely laid out and have whole, um, whole frameworks used to, to, to describe it, you know? Yeah, it's so, really useful. So useful for me and for others. Oh, that just made my year. <laughs> it's important you know, what you're doing, really. It's really yeah. important. I mean, at least we provided some psychoeducation about this experience so people can say, this, this feeling was normal. I'm not abnormal. Yes, I've, other people are going through this. Other people have survived this. And maybe I can find a healing place. Maybe I can you know, resume my journey. You have to process, you have to include the media humiliation in your new story because it did happen to you. You, you can't act like it didn't happen. You have to integrate it and say that was unfair. That was mm -hmm. messed up. But you know what? I'm not going to let it stop me. For sure. And I think like because the scale of it is so, um, so recent, like it, it, it being on such a large scale is so recent because of, because of the way the technology has advanced. Um, means that honestly it's like it's very poorly understood and you know you talked about how your therapist will sort of help you work through it but like um and and they absolutely will but also i think the therapist can be like extremely overwhelmed by this because it's such a crazy thing to happen to anyone you know it's really hard to actually coach somebody through it especially if you as a therapist have not experienced it you know yeah i actually think that this research study is an incredible resource for therapists because um actually many people have messaged me and told me that they found out about my work because of their therapist, because their therapist has recommended it when they talk about being canceled. Cause I've sort of been known as someone who talks about this now, but yeah, I think a lot of therapists are like at a loss as to what to recommend for um, their clients who are experiencing such a profound thing, just because there aren't books for therapists about the trauma of, you know, um, getting canceled by a Twitter mob. Yeah, exactly. And so your, your study is going to really, um, be an incredible resource for people who are trying to support people going through this experience. Yeah. yeah and, and the other thing is just, I think I'm hoping that it can also help people have compassion and empathy, because I think the stuff that you talk about, about how we, we socially, like we distance ourselves, we cut ourselves off from empathy. We assume that the people this is happening to, deserve if they deserve it, they must be bad. We like dehumanize them. And I think that this, this study, it really breaks down and shows that these people are going through a traumatic experience and that they are experiencing something that is like, literally like it, it I, I agree with you that I think that it causes complex PTSD, like 100%. And I think that if people can really see that how traumatic this experience is, they might think twice about, you know, hitting send on that um, insulting message that they want to send to a stranger on the internet. So, yeah, that's the, that's the goal. Thank you so much. I, it's been such an honor. Oh, for us too. Um, we just want to remind our listeners real quick that uh, you can check us out on patreon.com slash fucking canceled. And if you want to send us hate mail, that's fine. Um, it's uh, fucking canceled at gmail.com, but there's no you in fucking because Gmail wouldn't let us. And there's two L's in canceled because we're Canadian. Yeah. And thanks so much, uh, Christine. <laughs> it's been great having you. Thank you. Dire que je suis un OG.